in Germany, in amongst all the amazing treasures in that city, uh, there's one place that I think is fascinating. It's the Jewish Museum. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been or read about it. It's a museum right in the heart of Berlin that effectively reflecting back on the horrors of the Holocaust. And of course, it's both an inspiring building, as well as all that you find in it, is terrifying, horrifying, but also inspiring for the future. And it prompts so many questions if you ever get the opportunity to walk around the Jewish Museum. But one of the most pressing questions, I think, as I walked around it last year, is what would I have done if I lived in 1930s Germany? If I was a German citizen, how would I have acted? And this becomes even more pressing in one room in the museum. It's going to be on the screen. Hopefully you can see that. It's a room that has all of the laws that were passed throughout Germany during the 1930s, building on top of each other against the Jewish people. And every little law in various different parts of the country, in of themselves, as you read them, they're fairly mundane, banal laws. And the question remains this, at what point would I have said something? At what point would I have stood up and said enough is enough? Not just kind of chatting with my friends about how bad the government was. At what point would I have been willing to stand up and be counted at great cost? Because on the screen, this next room, well, it's not in the same room. This is the first law that was in that room. And it's really banal. It just says, slaughtering animals, according to Jewish custom, is prohibited in Bavaria. Would I, being a German citizen, at some point, if I was in Bavaria, said, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. At what point would my convictions have made it possible for me to stand up and be counted? At what point would I have been willing to suffer great personal cost for the sake of others? There's a saying, isn't there? You either stand for something or you get knocked down for nothing. What's the something that you and I would be willing to stand up for at personal cost? And this is the central question of one of the best movies, I think, of the last few years on a similar theme. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called A Hidden Life. Just out of interest, anyone seen A Hidden Life? I don't recommend many films. This I would heartily recommend to you. It is a beautiful, disturbing, inspiring story. Terence Malick film about four years ago. It's set in Nazi Germany, in fact, in Austria. It's set around a village in the Austrian kind of mountains, and the focus is one particular family with a young farmer, young Austrian farmer. And of course, in the late 1930s, what was happening is all the young men were being conscripted to fight for the Nazi fatherland. And this one man was willing to join the army. It's a true story. Willing to join the army. He was willing even to fight, but there was one thing he would not do. He would not swear allegiance to Hitler. And what begins in this film, at first it's a sort of minor embarrassment for those around him. 
And as the film goes on, the impact of his defiance, his resistance, his decision gets more and more severe as he goes into the army. And he's urged and forced. Come on, just swear the oath with people around him, church priests, even his own family saying, come on, you don't have to even mean it. Do it with your fingers crossed. Just say it. And there's this scene where he then ultimately is put in prison for his defiance. And there's a scene where his lawyer is trying to convince him, mate, come on, just say it. No one will even remember. And he says these words, don't you want to be free? To which this young farmer says, I am. As we continue this series called This Little Light of Mine, we're focusing on the early chapters of this book of Revelation. Complex book at the end of the Bible. It's written, these early chapters, to seven churches, which, if you like, reflect all of us. And the series is called this because the churches are referred to as lampstands. They're meant to shine brightly. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And today's central question is this. In a dark world, when dark things happen, how brightly will we shine and how will we keep on shining? And we get a snapshot in the reading that's been read of one church that's shining brightly but they're also in danger of having their lights switched off. And this is important for all of us, whether we're a person of faith or not. How far would you go with your convictions? When would you be willing to stand? Whatever those are. But of course, that's even more true for questions of life, faith, God, eternity. How do we keep going? And I don't know about you, friends. But over these last questions, this is a growing question for me as a follower of Jesus. How do I keep going in the face of many friends who once were passionate for Jesus, now nowhere? And for us as a church, how do we keep on shining as brightly as we can in the middle of cultural pressure and just the weariness of life to make church an added thing? to our lives, rather than something that we depend on because we love our brothers and sisters. How do we keep shining brightly? I love this quote from a guy called John Tyson. In a beautiful book, if you're a reader, I'd encourage you to read it. It's called Beautiful Resistance. He says this, I'm sure that you too have felt this conflict between the potential of the church and its compromise in our day. And I'm sure that you felt the conflict in your soul between who you are and whom God calls you to be. This is the time for a beautiful resistance. So how do we keep shining brightly? Because in some respects, this church has been doing it. Look at the verses that were read to us. Verses 12 to 13. These are the words who has the sharp double-edged sword. Jesus is speaking. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who's put to death in your city where Satan lives. These people are living in a tough place. Satan lives there. It's his throne. Birmingham's got its upsides and downsides. But that's a pretty dark city. And we're not quite sure what it means. It's probably that it was the center of what you could call the imperial cult, where people used to worship the Roman emperor. Not just tolerate, but worship. 
In other words, a sort of form of nationalism that meant Rome was God and all that that meant. And because of this, for the church, bad things happen. Clearly, one guy named Antipas, we don't know too much about him, but was killed for his faith in Jesus. But despite that, what do they do? They stand firm, they shine brightly. Even in the days of Antipas, you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith. Shining brightly in the face of opposition. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had the privilege of traveling to Southeast Asia. Uh, as a church, we support an organization called Open Doors uh, and had the privilege of traveling with Andy Worthington to visit some of the partners of Open Doors in that part of the world to see some of the work that goes on there. And we visited one group of followers of Jesus, one group of Christians, who had to meet in a house, in a home, because of their background. Meeting in public would have been very risky and dangerous for them. And we met one person, we'll call her Esther, who was a follower of Jesus, which meant choosing to follow Jesus meant losing so much. Her husband deserted her. Her financial resources were taken away. Job opportunities very, very limited. In that country where converting to deciding to follow Jesus means losing job prospects, education prospects, and for some, even your children taken by relatives. They couldn't meet in public, and so a simple gathering in a home with no band, no words on the screen. I've rarely been in a place where the worship was so alive and the joy was so obvious. And on Esther's face, she knew the cost was worth it because she'd found the ultimate prize. And in that a cappella singing with no musical background and changing key halfway through because it didn't quite go, the joy was beautiful. How to be like that, friends, in the face of opposition, even in the days of Antipas? How could this church be like that? Well, do you notice what John says about the church? Do you know what Jesus says? Really interesting. He refers to Antipas as my faithful witness, who was put to death in the city where Satan lives. He was a faithful witness. And that phrase if you remember back to Sarah's opening talk of this series, someone else is called a faithful witness. Look at the screen. Here it is. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The opening to the whole letter. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You see that? So who's the faithful witness? Not just Antipas, ultimately Jesus, the one who died. And who's the ruler in the city? They think it's Satan. But no, let me tell you, let me introduce you to Jesus, the king over all the kings. And so it's in that context that therefore we can endure even opposition because we're not the first. We follow a savior who went to the cross. And so if you're here this morning or you're watching online, you're gathering together with others or on your own, and you're exploring what Christian faith really looks like, and you're wondering if this is the option for you, can I say to you, choosing to follow Jesus may make your life much more complex, more challenging. Because we follow a Savior who died. And if you're choosing Jesus to make your life better or fill your emotional needs, 
We follow one who went to the cross. But that enables us to endure because there is the faithful witness who is king over all the kings who rose from the dead. So how do we keep clinging on? Remembering Jesus in the face of opposition. And that's why this quote that we've mentioned a number of times in this series about the UK church, I find so helpful. A guy called John McGinley has written a book called The Church of Tomorrow. He said this, I genuinely believe the best days of the church in the UK are ahead of us. But they won't look like the best days by the current standards or measurements of success that we use today. Size, numbers, our position and influence in society. I believe they'll be characterized by the church being marginalized, organizationally weakened, and humbled and on our knees before God. These are the places God has always begun his work of revival. May it be so in our day, friends. John's reminding these guys, guys, you're on the winning team. When the disciples looked at Jesus on the cross, they thought it was over. But that was Friday and Sunday was coming. So keep going, he says, in the face of opposition. You're shining brightly, friends. But, but, they're doing well in the face of direct opposition. But they're in danger of something else. They're in danger of being seduced by their surrounding culture. They're in danger of their light growing a little bit dim in the cultural tide of their age. Because there's a warning for this church. Did you hear it as Emily was reading? Here they are, verse 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus is reminding this church there's a couple of issues that they are compromising, or some are compromising on, in their community. And do you notice what they are? Two particular areas of temptation, idolatry and immorality, sex and stomach. <laughs> And in a sense, they're kind of part of the same thing. Now, the reference there to Balaam and Balak goes back to the Old Testament, where a prophet was encouraging the followers of God to compromise their faith for the sake of comfort and ease by bowing down to other gods. No one's quite sure who the Nicolaitans were, but again, it's all part of these same issues. Food sacrificed to idols seemed to be no problem. Now, it's just worth pausing here for anyone who knows your Bible. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul talks about food sacrificed to idols as being a matter of conscience. But it's clear for these guys, and in Acts chapter 15 and beyond, that what was going on here is it wasn't a choice. They were choosing something that meant they were effectively engaging in idolatry. Let me explain what that might look like. A few years ago, I was clearing through some of all my old papers. And if you've ever had that opportunity, my parents very kindly said, well, you need your stuff out of our loft now. Thank you very much. And I was clearing some stuff away, and I found some old, old love letters 
from previous girlfriends. Now, I'm married to Claire. Imagine for a moment if I decided to keep those letters and then when times are tricky, get them out just to remind myself of the good old days pre-Claire. How would that make Claire feel? Brave man. <laughs> Amen. I didn't. <laughs> that is the kind of emphasis that's going on here. They were hedging their bets. They were, as it were, keeping their old world one foot in that and also going with Jesus. Why the Bible so often calls that kind of behavior spiritual adultery. Hedging your bets, saying you're a follower of Jesus, but having other gods as an insurance policy just in case. That's what they were doing. And ultimately, the temptation was therefore around sex and sexual immorality. Uh, may I say again, if I can be careful saying this, having been out of the UK context for even just eight days, arriving back into the UK context, many of you who've traveled will notice this, where you've been in a different culture with very different cultural tides and pressures and all that sort of stuff. The waters that we swim in, friends, are very, very sexualized. From the adverts on the billboards to the clothes we wear, the emphasis in our news items, whatever they are. Now, I'm not saying a culture is better than another, but friends, we know we are in a sexualized culture. And many will say the freedoms haven't gone far enough. And hear me, I'm not saying back in the old days things were great. But what I think we all recognize in our day is that with greater freedom, ultimately, does also come greater challenge, particularly for the most vulnerable, and particularly for women. Listen to this quote from a woman called Christine Ember. Used to kind of go in circles like ours from America. Used to be in churches like ours. Not now. Not sure whether she'd call herself a Christian or not. But she's writing as a secular observer about our age. She says this. Of all of the research, as a woman... Things don't have to be criminal to be profoundly bad, she writes. And the fact that so many of the people around me relate so deeply to stories of harrowing dates and lackluster encounters shows that a lot of us are having a lot of bad sex. Unwanted, depressing, even traumatic. If this is ordinary, something is deeply wrong. She goes on, as a society, we tend to shy away from declaring certain behaviors intrinsically wrong or right. The focus on consent has perhaps inadvertently allowed us to dodge difficult questions about morality and what our sexual culture really ought to look like. Fascinating. And we all know the church throughout the ages has compromised on these two things, idolatry and sexual immorality. You don't need me to tell you the stories. But just because the song has been played badly, it doesn't mean the original is not a beautiful symphony, friends. But do you notice something before we get to where we are supposed to keep our eyes focused? There's something important here that I just want to say as an emphasis as carefully as possible. Do you notice what Jesus says? There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The key issue here is that the church was allowing, encouraging the teaching of certain idolatrous and immoral behaviors. 
Friends, as a church, Riverside is a place for sinners. May you never hear that you are not welcome within the walls of our church because of what's going on in your life. Jesus came as a friend of sinners. But Jesus keeps his eye on what's being taught by the church too. And it's a reminder that hits his church because do you see what he says in verse 16? Ultimately, if we keep on tolerating stuff, he may well just take the lampstand away. So how do we keep standing firm in the face of all of this opposition or just seduction away? Well, as we come to a close, the ending is beautiful. Keep your eyes on the prize, is what Jesus says. In the same way that the Esther I met in Southeast Asia, there was something so great that the temporary discomfort or dis-ease meant it was worth it. So too, there is a greater prize that enables us to stand a beautiful, defiant resistance that says Jesus is worth it, friends. You speak to any athlete. How do they endure all the suffering? The pain of getting up every morning at 4 a.m. or whatever it is? by keeping your eyes on one day the prize. So too for these Christians. And can I say, as we just get into these last verses, can I say something to our young people who have that radical edge? Can I say, foster that. Be different, friends. Be radical in a culture that will want to conform you and is discipling you 24-7. Be willing to stand up and be counted like the beautiful resistance in Nazi Germany. Let's help each other. But also, can I say, on this Father's Day, for you who are dads, or you are father figures in people's lives, to those who are just trying to be faithful, with the mundane stuff, trying to just be a rock-solid father or father figure. Well done. Well done. I don't think you get quite enough well dones. Keep going. The prize is worth it, friends. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever has here ears, verse 16, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What do these things mean? Hidden manna. Well, manna in the Old Testament is bread, the bread of life, reference to Jesus. In other words, if you keep on clinging on to Jesus, the prize is worth it, friends. You and I both know that when we're tempted to hedge our bets a bit, tempted to have our feet in both camps, the passion for Jesus wanes. The time we spend with the Bible wanes. Church becomes an optional extra. What he's simply saying is the more we adopt that posture of beautiful resistance, so too Jesus will become more and more precious to us. But what do you notice what's given? A white stone. I don't know about you. When I first read that, I thought, white stone? I don't really want a white stone. Not very much. I'd quite like a Ferrari, thanks. <laughs> What does that mean? It could be one of many, many things, but it's probable that in those days, you remember the Roman games? 
The victors in those games were given a white stone, which meant they had access to the feast. And also in those days, in ancient trials, the way they used to decide it, they would have two urns, and a white stone would be thrown into an urn to show guilt-free acquittal. And so, friends, the image is clear. If we keep on clinging on, even in the face of opposition, or just being kind of tied away, the prize is worth it, friends. So on this Father's Day, in the middle of the ashes, may we keep our eyes fixed on the one who one day will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that will be enough.